So we're continuing this morning our series on Elijah and Elisha in First and Second Kings, a series we're calling The God Who Lives, because that's what these stories are about, the God who lives, the God whom Elijah and then Elisha serve in the midst of a time and a moment when the rest of their countrymen and women no longer believed that that God lived, when the people had turned away we heard last week in 1 Kings 17 how the people had been worshiping Baal, that when Jezebel and Ahab married and Jezebel moved down from Sidon, she brought with her the worship of Baal and Asherah, and the people turned away and began to follow this false god. And yet, though everyone else seemed to walk away, Elijah and Elisha remained faithful. They lived their lives as a witness to a god who was alive and at work though the rest of the world didn't seem to notice. And so I think there'll be examples for us of what it means to live with faith in a faithless world. We're going to look this week at the next chapter of the story, 1 Kings 18, and it begins with God announcing to Elijah after three years of drought that the drought is about to end and he must go and speak to Ahab. Before we hear that story, we're going to pause and pray because we want to make sure it's God who's speaking this morning. Let's pray. Lord, it's in your light that we see light. It's in your truth that we find freedom, and in your way that we find peace. So come, Lord, and shine upon us. Burn brilliantly that we might follow after you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Do whatever you need to do to listen well to these words from the book that we love. Ahab sent the message to all the Israelites, and he gathered all the prophets at Mount Carmel. Then Elijah approached the people and said to them, How long will you go on hobbling back and forth between two opinions? If the Lord is God, worship God. If Baal is God, worship Baal. And the people gave no answer. So Elijah said to the people, I'm the last of the Lord's prophets. Baal's prophets number 450. Give us two bowls. Let them choose one. Let them cut it apart and lay it on the wood, but not add fire. I'll take the other. Prepare it and lay it on the wood but not add fire. Then you call on the name of your God, and I'll call on the name of the Lord, and the God who answers with fire, that's the real God. And the people said, that's an excellent idea. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls. Since there are so many of you, prepare it first. Call on the name of your God, but don't add fire. So they took one of the bulls that had been brought to them, they prepared it, and called on Baal's name from morning until evening. Great Baal, answer us! But there was no sound or answer. They performed a hopping dance around the altar that had been set up. And around noonday, Elijah started to make fun of them. Shout louder! Certainly he's a god! Perhaps he's lost in thought, or wandering, or traveling somewhere. 
Or maybe he's asleep and needs to wake up. So the prophets of Baal cried with a louder voice, and they cut themselves with swords and knives, as was their custom, and blood flowed all over them. And as noon passed, they went crazy with their ritual until it was time for the evening offering, and still there was no answer, no response whatsoever. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here. And the people gathered in. And he repaired the Lord's temple that had been destroyed. Elijah took 12 stones according to the 12 tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, your name will be Israel. He built the stones into an altar in the Lord's name and dug a trench around it big enough to carry two seahs of dry grain. And he put the wood in order. And he butchered the bowl and laid it on the wood. Fill four jars full of water and pour them on the offering and on the wood, he commanded. Do it a second time. They did it a second time. Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. The water flowed around the altar and even filled the trench with water. And at the time of the evening offering, the prophet Elijah drew near and prayed. Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. I have done all this according to your instruction. Answer me, Lord, answer me so that this people may know that you are the real God and that you can change their hearts. And the Lord's fire fell and it consumed the offering and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, even the water in the trench, it licked up. And all the people saw this and fell on their faces and said, The Lord is the real God. The Lord is the real God. And Elijah said to them, Seize Baal's prophets. Don't let any of them escape. And so they seized Baal's prophets. And Elijah took them down to the Kishon brook and killed them there. And then Elijah said to King Ahab, Get up. Celebrate with food and with drink because I hear a rainstorm coming. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. As we pay attention to the scriptures this morning, we learn two things about God. Scripture, first and foremost, is telling us things about God. So we listen for those things first. There's two in this story. The first is that God seems to take the first commandment pretty seriously, right? The second is that everything God does is permeated by grace. Everything in this story is permeated by grace. It may not seem like that on the surface, but trust me, we'll see it in a few minutes. The earliest Christian heresy was the belief that the God of the Old Testament was a God of wrath and anger, and the God of the New Testament, one of grace and love, and the two were mutually opposed to each other. But when we actually read the stories like this, nothing could be further from the truth. It's grace. But first, God takes the first commandment pretty seriously. Do you remember the first commandment? Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, you can go and check them all out. The first one goes like this. I am the Lord your God. 
who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. No other gods. And God seems to take that commandment pretty seriously. Not just because God put it first, but look at the story. We're at the end now of a three-year drought that came because the people of God had turned away and were worshiping Baal. It had been announced as the answer to those promises and curses from the book of Deuteronomy. We talked about it last week. A drought for three years because the people had turned away. God's pretty serious. God establishes this whole contest, this showdown we see in this chapter, one of the most epic and pyrotechnic stories in the Bible, simply to show once and for all who is God, to force the people to decide who are you going to follow because if you're going to say you're my people, no other gods before me. Even the slaughter of Baal's prophets, all of them down by the Kishon Brook, is because God is serious about the first commandment. No other gods. And these are prophets of another God who have come into Israel to lead the people astray. And once the people turn back and profess that God is the real God, they must rid the land of other gods and other worship. God's pretty serious about the first commandment. God's described in Scripture as a jealous God, sometimes as a jealous lover, that God is our our partner, our spouse, and God expects fidelity. Israel is often described as the harlot that turns away and cheats on God every chance she gets. But God wants her back, and God wants her to remain faithful. God's serious about the first commandment, though we tend to just jump by it and get into the later ones. And it's not because God's a narcissist. God's not a megalomaniac. God's the creator. And God has created us to worship and serve God alone. God knows how we best function because God made us and made us for God's self. God wrote the instruction manual. He knows how we function best. And that's with God at the center. All of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, all of our strength. No other gods before me. God is not meant to be one of the spokes in the bicycle wheel, but the hub, that which orders all of the rest, that which provides structure and balance to everything else in our lives. And yet, as Elijah says, how long will you go on hobbling back and forth between two opinions? Hobbling. Maybe they were hedging their bets and trying to keep all the various gods happy so that Whichever one was real, they'd reap the benefits. Maybe they had compartmentalized things. They'd worship Yahweh over here and Baal over here and Asherah over here. Hobbling back and forth. I love that choice of words from Elijah. Hobbling. Because they probably thought it was working. They probably thought they were dancing and strolling back and forth between the worship of all these different gods. But Elijah names it hobbling. You're hobbled, you're limping, it's not working. You know those like clown bikes where the hub is off center and the wheels like go up and down? Anybody? Okay, thank you. I was getting blank stares. <clears throat> when the hub is not in the center of the wheel, it's not working. They're hobbling back and forth. They've grown comfortable with the limp, but Elijah points it out again. 
You know, sometimes the work of physical therapy isn't to do the healing, it's to correct your stride because you've learned to walk wrong because of the former pain. They're hobbling back and forth, and Elijah wants them to walk straight again. This passage, one of the things it does for us as we pay attention to it, is it invites us to wonder where we're hobbling. Where is it, maybe? Where we gather here, surely, on Sunday morning. You're here, you're with us online. We're worshiping the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, singing songs, saying prayers, listening to a sermon. And yet we go out from this place And do we worship other gods out there? Do we go out from here and worship at the altar of Amazon Prime? It's Prime Day tomorrow and the next day. Did you know? Get ready. Do we leave from here and worship at the altar of success or career, sacrificing time and energy and friendships and family and our health, anything for future security and prosperity? Do we go to sacrifice at altars of pleasure and comfort and entertainment? Do we worship the God of family, the God of self, or any of a myriad of other gods? Only you know what's in your heart. Only you can sense where you are hobbling. But notice something about all those other gods. They're all good things. They're not terrible things. Satan's more clever than that. We're tempted by good things. The problem is when we put them in the center and move God out. The problem is when God becomes one of the spokes and something else becomes the middle because these things can't hold up under that ultimate pressure. They can't ultimately deliver on the promises that they offer to us. And that's really what this whole test is about. Can these gods deliver on the promises they give. Baal is the rider on the clouds. He's the bringer of rain. There's been a three-year drought, and he hasn't really been able to do anything about it. But he's also often pictured uh, in ancient Near Eastern inscriptions with a lightning bolt in his hand, sort of like Zeus. If there's any god who could just send a little bolt of lightning down and light this altar on fire miraculously. Surely it's Baal, the rider on the clouds, the bringer of storms. And yet after a whole day with 450 prophets crying out, cutting themselves, having given every possible advantage, silence, nothing. Because false gods cannot deliver ultimately on the promises they give. One of the false gods I'm most likely to worship is a god of success. I desperately want for you to look up here and see someone who's competent and successful. Failure is one of the worst things I can imagine because you will no longer accept me or want anything to do with me with the smallest of failures. I desperately want to be a young, successful pastor who can lead a church to thrive And I'll sacrifice almost anything at that altar if I'm not careful. But can that God ultimately deliver on the promises? If I'm successful, will everything else fall in line like I imagine it will? If we stop and think about it, if we run through the test, and you can do this with your false gods, will it? I don't think so, because I don't think I'd know when success came, because what would it mean? There's always another step. There's always another level or layer. And even if it did, 
if, let's just suppose, a year from now, there's 1,500 people worshiping every Sunday at Wyckoff Reformed Church. Everything is going great. The staff has exploded, and you all look at me and say, he's the one who did it all. Let's just say all those dreams are answered. I don't think I'd be happy at all. I think I'd be anxiously afraid that it would all fall apart, that the magic would be gone. And I think my ego would be unhealthily formed in all sorts of terrible ways that would make me an awful person. And I would have used you to get there. And I would have thought I did it all. None of which would be a good thing. There's a reason we watch pastors of megachurches falling. That God cannot deliver on its promises. So how long will I go hobbling on back and forth between the two, singing God's praises here, preaching the gospel, and then going out pretending like I'm the one who has to do everything that needs doing? False gods cannot deliver on their promises. So how long will we go on hobbling? God was serious about that first commandment. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. But God was also pretty serious about grace. And grace permeates everything in this story. Let's just look at it together. It started, we didn't read this part, so that's my fault. But the beginning of this chapter God comes to Elijah and speaks again that God wants to end the drought. The whole story begins because God wants to end this drought, this drought that is in place for good reason. The people have turned away. They've been unfaithful to the covenant, and this is what God said all those years long ago. This is what would happen. They were getting what they deserved. They were getting what they signed up for, and yet God wants to bring it to an end because God can't bear it anymore. It's grace. It's God's forbearance. We tend to look at stories like this and wonder, how could God punish anyone? How could God do things like this? But the question that Scripture asks, when we get ourselves deep into these stories, the questions that arise are not, how could God punish, but why is God so patient? This is God's covenant people. They had entered into a relationship of promise. They knew what was expected, and they continued to walk away, and they knew what that entailed. So why does God continually throughout these stories not punish them, or punish them a little and then call them back, or wait and wait and wait and hope that they repent and come home again? Why is God so patient? These are stories of God's forbearance. For God is, as the old confession says, Gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and willing, ready to relent from punishing, to change God's mind about judgment. It's grace. And then there's the whole showdown. The whole thing is orchestrated so that God's people would have an opportunity to repent and turn around. We heard it in Elijah's prayer, answer me, O Lord, answer me, so that this people may know that you are the real God and that you can change their hearts. The whole thing's about changing their hearts. That's repentance. That's the reason God does all of this is to pursue us, to come after us, to provide every opportunity and circumstance that we might come back. It's grace. Elijah's offering 
He has the people gather in. The altar has been damaged, and so he must repair it. And he takes 12 stones, one for each of the tribes of Israel. This altar now is a stand-in, a substitute for the whole nation, for the people of God. He lays the wood on it. He sacrifices the bull and places it on top and then prays. And as the fire of God falls, we realize this is a burnt offering. And this fire symbolizes a few things. It symbolizes God's leading. If you remember in the wilderness, they were led by a pillar of fire at night and a cloud of smoke during the day. God is leading and drawing them into who they are, the 12 tribes, God's people with God's name written on their foreheads. It's a symbol of judgment, of of anger falling from heaven, but falling not on the people who deserved it, but falling on this burnt offering, on this sacrifice offered instead. God's anger falls there and consumes it entirely, and the people are allowed to go free. It consumes even the water in the trench around it, which if you were paying attention, four jars of water three times, that's 12 again. Water to douse God's fire. I think that's the sins of Israel. And yet when God's fire falls, it licks it all up and it is gone. And the people are forgiven. Fire is also purification. It's fire that cleanses. It burns off the dross that the precious metals might be brought into their brilliance. And that fire falls and consumes everything, the sacrifice, the wood, even the stones, even the dust and the water. It is all gone. They are purified and cleansed in God. It is total. It's grace. Grace allowing a way for the people of God to come back. And they respond with their confession, which is begun by God's grace. The Lord is the real God. The Lord is the real God. They're repenting. They're turning back. Repentance is to be going in one way, to stop and turn around and go in the other. It is to give up. It is to change our hearts and our lives. And so they turn back. Hebrews says it's laying aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely that we might run with perseverance the race that is marked out before us. They're turning to God by turning away from all the other gods they've been off-worshipping. And I think, by the way, that's the lens through which we need to see the killing of Baal's prophets. It's not just a slaughter of others or foreigners or people who are different from them. Because if you remember last chapter, God sent Elijah off into Zarephath, which is right next to Sidon. That's Baal's home territory. That's a Gentile widow. And God there provides for her and her family. God raises her son from the dead. These are Baal's prophets imported to lead the people astray. And even Jesus has some pretty harsh things to say about such people. It'd be better to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the ocean. Better to have that happen than to lead one of God's children astray. They are ridding their lives of sin and evil, of temptation entirely. They're turning back wholeheartedly to God. And then they celebrate a covenant renewal meal. We may miss that because culturally we're not looking for it, but every time they renew the covenant, there's a meal, a celebration. Go back and read the story on Mount Sinai. All the elders and Moses and Aaron celebrate a meal with God up on Mount Sinai. 
Joshua celebrates a covenant renewal meal when the people renew the covenant upon entering into the promised land. And here Elijah and Ahab and all the people celebrate a covenant renewal meal on Mount Carmel. They gather to celebrate with food and drink because the rain's coming. Because God has forgiven and is welcoming them back into this relationship of promise by grace and grace alone. And so the people gather around a table to celebrate a meal, to remember what God has done for them, and to pledge their allegiance and their faithfulness to God and to God alone. And then if you keep reading along the story, the rain begins to fall after three years of drought. It's grace It's grace all the way through and all the way down, and it's grace that looks forward to an even greater grace, to another sacrifice that's offered, not on a stone altar, but on a wooden cross, to another sacrifice who will stand in for all of God's people to bear God's wrath and judgment so that we can go free, another sacrifice that would be consumed entirely, going down into death itself, only to be raised back to life again as the drought is ended three days later with rain that falls, of a fire that will fall from heaven in the Holy Spirit to dwell in our hearts, to purify and cleanse us by sanctification and renewal, of another meal which we'll gather to celebrate around a table to remember what God has done for us, how God has provided for us, provided in every circumstance, rescuing us from sin to slavery and death, providing himself as our sacrifice and raising us into new life, pointing us forward to another final battle envisioned by John in Revelation 16 in this same valley, Armageddon, the mountain by Megiddo, where a rider called Faithful and True will come to lead God's forces to destroy evil across the face of the earth once and for all, to rid creation of its influence, and to welcome in a kingdom of justice and peace and love. It's all grace. It's all the story of the God who pursues us relentlessly, of the God who heads out into the far country to meet the son who is still far off and to celebrate, to throw his arms around him and carry him home. The story of the God who goes out into the darkness to find the older son grumbling and carry him into the party. It's the story of God who pursues us endlessly in Jesus Christ. It's the story of grace, grace, grace. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for stories like this that that shape our imagination, that draw us in, and once we're inside, begin to work on us, to envision a God who may be actually able to do something like this, to a God who is alive and active, to a God who can answer prayers, to a God who draws near to us and provides ways for us to come home again. That your grace, Lord, is true. And so we can finally turn away from all these other gods we worship because our lives are not defined by our success or our families or our comfort. They're defined by you and by you alone. You, in the end, are all that we have. And you, Lord, are the one who will hold us and hold us through, through the end and into your kingdom. 
It's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.